Well, we're so thankful to be back here this evening with you all. Uh, I can say truly in my heart, there's no place I had rather be right now. And that's true for a lot of you. Um, but my experience when I was a 10-year-old in the house of God in you know, the third meeting in an annual meeting, that was not necessarily my feel. I could think of a... So I'm very, very sensitive uh, to the dear young ones that we have with us tonight, and we will be expedient. I recognize what time it is. Uh, this is the third service in two days, and uh, I, I'm just so thankful to be here. It's a privilege. It's a great privilege. We're not presumptuous, um, and so to it. I want to read to you a passage, a uh, very familiar passage of Scripture. I don't know if there's one that's more familiar to you all here, um, but we'll think about it together, God being our helper. Um, you know, sometimes we read a familiar passage of Scripture and we think, I get it, I know it. And I thought I'd heard everything there was to hear about Mephibosheth at this point in my life. But Brother Ferry's just, the Holy Spirit anointed my heart with uh, the precious picture of Mephibosheth meeting his king. Nothing mattered if uh, the king wasn't there and nothing really mattered except the king once he got there. That was so touching. So be careful. And in one sense, whether these words speak to your heart right now or not, in one sense, it doesn't matter. Because it's God's word. And um, I love his word. I bathe its pages with my thoughtful reflection and meditation and sometimes sweet tears. So I always want my heart to be open and receptive to any portion of God's word, whether it's unfamiliar or the most familiar. I remember that old riddle, and young folks, if you can tell me where this came from after church, I'll bring you a bunch of cinnamon gum tomorrow. <laughs> I bring a little of that every once in a while. But the word of God is like the, uh, that old riddle. Um, and I'm not going to tell you where it's from. It hath no hinges, and it hath no lid. But inside, golden treasures are hid. If you can tell me where that comes from later. Hath no hinges, hath no lid, but inside, golden treasures are hid. That's the word of God. It's seamless, it's complete, it is perfect. Golden treasures are hid inside. So come along. John chapter 6, verse 41. John chapter 6, verse 41. The pages cease to rattle. We'll begin to read. John chapter 6, verse 41. Then the Jews murmured at him, argued with him. Then the Jews murmured with him because he said, I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus, therefore, answered and said unto them, murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except my father which has sent me, draw him, and him will I raise up again at the last day. Uh, one of the studies that I've enjoyed in the Gospels over the past several years are studying the narratives in the Gospels of when people get brave enough to argue with Jesus about a matter. That's not necessarily brave, it probably leans more to the dumb side of the continuum. <laughs> But I do love the studies, people arguing with Jesus, and they weren't, uh, they would do it. They argue with him about politics. Um, you know, do we pay tax to Caesar or not? Is Caesar king? Or are you king? Who's king? Argue with him about politics. 
they argued with him about the response. Who is responsible for evil in this world? In the matter of the boy that was born blind. Here, they're going to argue with Christ about sovereignty. Who's in charge? Who's calling the shots? Um, so, I love to come to Little Union. I love to see the young folks that are here. So, I want to speak to you just a moment. I want to share a little story with you about Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. And Dr. Watson's my favorite. Not Sherlock Holmes. He's a brilliant man, but I like Dr. Watson. The old affable fellow. It just goes along. So they were camping one night, uh, and they were in the hills of Scotland. And they were on the trail, of course, of some criminal. And um, so Sherlock Holmes, in the middle of the night, he wakes up Dr. Watson. Listen to me now, young folks. In the middle of the night, Sherlock Holmes wakes up Dr. Watson. And he says, Dr. Watson, he says, wake up. Tell me what you see. And Watson looks up and he says, why, Holmes, I see millions of stars. And Sherlock Holmes says, Watson, what do you deduce from that? And so Watson said, well, from an, from an astronomical uh, viewpoint, he said, I deduce that there are millions of galaxies and possibly trillions of stars. From an astrological standpoint, I deduce that Saturn is in Leo. From an orological standpoint, it's probably about 3.30 in the morning. From a, meteorolo from a meteorological standpoint, it looks like we're going to have a fair day tomorrow. From a theological standpoint, I see that God is a great creator, almighty God, and we're rather insignificant in this universe. And so he says, and Holmes, what do you deduce? He said, you idiot, Watson, they've stolen our tent. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <laughs> poor Watson. So listen, young folks. I have seen in my travels among the old Baptists, and, and I'm telling you, uh, outside of my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, my travels among the old Baptists are the most precious thing I've ever experienced. Is there, what about your wife? Well, I found her at an old Baptist church meeting, okay? <laughs> um, and there are many people that I began walking with many years ago and they're not old Baptists anymore. They're not, they're not believers anymore. I know folks that professed, the, I mean, not just a few, that professed a belief in the sovereignty of God at one point in their life. And today, they're sitting in pews of denominational religion where man is on the throne and God is not on the throne. Now, any God that you have to let, if you don't, he can't, unless you will, that God's not on the throne. So what happened to them? Somebody stole their tent. Somebody stole their tent. And so tonight, I want to talk to you about arguing with Jesus about sovereignty. Listen to me very carefully. Don't let anyone steal your tent. Many years ago, we had a young lady, Maggie, you've heard me talk about Maggie probably. She passed away young. Um, but Maggie was a dear heart, and she went one Sunday morning. Um, I, I don't speak against others. I don't take others to task in the main, but right now. Um, 
So Maggie went to this uh, denominational, largest denominational church in our community, and I got a phone call Sunday afternoon, and she was weeping on the other end of the phone. She was 12 years old, and I went out to her house. She was upset. She'd been so humiliated. And her pastor, he was brand new in the community. He was from West Texas. <laughs> Not your part of West Texas, clearly. And he had just come to town, and he'd heard a little, he didn't know anything about Primitive Baptist, and he heard too much about Primitive Baptist, investigated us, and the morning that Maggie went to church with them, he took Primitive Baptist for his text that morning, a thousand people out there, and he worked on Primitive Baptist, and just mocked us and spoke hard and harsh of us, until, and Maggie, who was so sweet, so tenderhearted, she she couldn't take it anymore, and she got up from her seat and walked out and just fell apart in the foyer. She was so humiliated, and she was greatly respected. And let me say this. Thank God, in Baker County, whether, whether you're primitive Baptist or not, the old Baptist church is greatly respected, and we're so thankful for that. Even folks who aren't old Baptists respect us. Many of their mothers and fathers uh, had roots in the old Baptist church. Well... Um, I called the brother Monday morning to meet with him and talk with him about what he had done to one of my lambs and what he had done to us from the pulpit. And I went to speak to him very kindly, you know, uh, speak the truth in love. And this is, this is what he said. Whenever I went there and I understand before I got there, he'd been taken to task by some of the leadership of the church who respected us, loved us. And so I sat down with him and I said, brother, listen. And I explained, I said everything I just said. And I just said, I want you to know that she is brokenhearted um, and I'm offended and hurt. And so I'm speaking to him. He said, no, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. You've got, no, you don't understand. And then he told me, he looked at me, he said, no, I believe what you believe more than you believe it. Well, that hurt a little bit. <laughs> he, that's what he told me. He said, I do. He said, no, I studied English, Baptist, and seminary. I know it. I, I've got it. I mean, I understand election predestination. He said, no, the sovereignty of God, uh, final preservation of the saints. He said, no, I've, I'm, yeah, that's me. I believe that. I believe it with everything in me. And I said, listen, I've already held a... I've already held a funeral with you, and I heard you make an offer of salvation at the end of, uh, at the, that's not what I believe. That's not what we teach. You know, he said, no, no, no. He said, no, I believe it. He said, I believe it. And I said, what are you doing here? And he looked at me, and he said, well, tell me, how many of you preach to on Sunday morning? I said, well, it just depends, a hundred. How many preach to on Sunday morning? He said, well, we, we had a thousand Sunday morning. He said, so you tell me who's doing the most good. Preaching what you preach or what I preach. Now, somebody stole his tent. But it comes down to this. I said, listen, brother, if you believe what you say you believe, the difference between you and me is this. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1.14, and I said, evidently you are. Your measure of what success is. I said, tell me, Christ setting up his own church in this world, was he a success? Not by your measure, because just a handful around the cross, the church had shrunk very small. That were willing. Listen, do not lose your tent. Don't be ashamed, young folks. Do, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Arguing with Jesus about the sovereignty of God. Jesus, uh, it was a problem. He, he had fed the multitudes here with a few loaves and fishes. And he dropped a bombshell. I mean, it was a big bombshell. Uh, he said, I'm the bread of life. Come down from heaven. And they were shocked. He, I'm the bread of life. I've come down from heaven. That was a big bombshell. They began to have problems with that. 
And what he's telling them, I'm not like other teachers. I haven't come here, and this makes us different than everybody else. He said, I, I haven't come here to tell you how to get life. I have come because I am life. I am the life. I'm, I'm not here telling you how to get it. I've brought it. I am it. Partake of me. That's what he means. I'm the bread of life. Partake of me. Be nourished by me. Live by me. And they grumbled because they didn't get it. They still thought it was what they could do. And then he drops another bombshell. As they're grumbling, they're going to argue with him. As they're grumbling, he drops another bombshell here. And he says this, no man can come unto me except my father, which has sent, sent me, draw him. You can't get me and you won't like me except my father, which sent me, draw you. He just took it out of their hands, a relationship with him. Christ just took the relationship with God completely, entirely out of their hands and placed it in the hands of his father. My father's going to be in charge of a relationship with you, salvation and redemption. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. So stop arguing. It's not going to happen unless my father makes it happen. So what does that mean? What is he claiming? Do he's claiming here? Um, let me stop here and say this. One of the reasons, uh, there are many, there's a myriad of them, but one of the reasons that I, listen, that I trust the word of God is because it's the only adequate explanation of who I am, what goes on inside of me, what's going on around me, how to explain this world, um, you know, from a cosmological standpoint, the Word of God, the Bible, the 66 books in the Bible, is the only book that adequately explains this cosmos. I mean, you can believe what Stephen Hawking said, who said, and I've shared this with you, you can believe what Stephen Hawking said about uh, how things got here. He says, because the law, this is what he said, because the law of gravity exists, the universe must and will create itself. That explains a lot, doesn't it? Did that help you? That's what he said. That was his answer. Because the law of gravity exists, the universe must and will create itself. That doesn't make a lick of sense. Well, that just kicked the cosmological can up the road. Where'd the law of gravity come from? Well, he doesn't offer us that. Moses does. Moses said, in the beginning, God. An uncreated, self-existing, eternal, all-powerful being said, let there be, and it was so. That makes a lot more sense than because the law of gravity exists. The universe must and will create itself. I trust the word of God because it adequately explains how I got here. It does. I believe in cause and effect. I trust the word of God because in matters of soteriology, that is salvation, redemption, which talks about the nature of man and the need of man for a savior. Only this book adequately explains who I am, that I'm a sinner. Only, you know, uh, those that don't believe in the word of God, they, they make excuses for the horrific acts and deeds that we see going on around us. It's a lack of education. You educators need to do a better job. <laughs> or it's a matter of poverty. Poor people just are pressed to measure. They do desperate things, and that's the reason we have the crime, because people are poor. There were a lot of people that were poor in the Depression. We didn't have crime rates that we have today. Well, it's, it's um, the imbalance of power. We need to get the power structures right. And you change power structures, it's just a new set of people sitting in power and you get the same results that you always got. Whether it's capitalism, communism, it's, it's the same. So 
The Word of God adequately explains. It adequately explains what's going on. God's Word tells me that um, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And that makes sense to me. That this God who created this heaven, this earth, he'd have to be a great God, a powerful God, an all-wise God. I know he's a good God because of the blessings in my life. He would have to be holy. He'd have to be just. And I'd never measure up to him. And he would have to, he'd have to take care of me. That makes sense to me. The Bible adequately explains what, that's why I trust it. You know, it's very, it's very avant-garde right now. The Hindu scriptures are receiving a lot of, they're receiving a lot of play, especially in the institutes of higher learning. We think that the Hindu scriptures have a lot to say to us. You'll get that right now. They're so wise. They're so informed. Cosmologically, the Hindu scriptures say that the, that the uh, universe right now is going along on the back of a huge turtle right now. <laughs> You young folks, you can trust the word of God and what it has to say about anything. And it says that God's sovereign. It says God's in charge. He's sovereign in the matter of our relationship with him. I know it's a verse to the palate of many people in this world that Jesus says this in John 15, 16. He says, the fact is, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. And I've ordained you that you should bear fruit. That's the pattern. That's the cause and the effect relationship. You haven't chosen me. I know it's perplexing. But the word of God tells me it explains why God must move sovereignly. Why God must move on my behalf. Why I cannot move toward him. The word of God explains why it has to be God. And it's because I can't make it happen. I cannot. Jesus tells us, in, there are two amazing things in John 5 and John 6 that adequately explains what's going on inside of me and why I am dependent upon a sovereign God. Jesus tells me that my problem, your problem, everybody's problem in developing their own relationship with God, there, there are two big issues that we have. One is that we lack a will to have a relationship with God by nature. Before Christ comes to us, he tells us in John 5.40, he says, you will not come to me. Now, that's pretty plain. Somebody has to help you uh, misunderstand that. You will not come to me that you might have life. You will not do it. You lack the will. And because you lack the will, he tells us in John 6.44, no man can come. If you lack the will, that's going to mean later that you lack the ability we lack the will and we lack the ability. You will not come and because you will not come, you cannot come. You lack the will to. Men love darkness. It's sad. Rather than light. We see that all around us, don't we? The programming on television. It's incredible, isn't it? Why would they program such filth? Why on the Grammys would they highlight a section in, in the recent Grammy Awards? I didn't watch it, but boy, I've heard about it. That CBS highlighted a section in the Grammys of devil worshipers. And then the advertisement said, let us worship. As they get ready for the Grammy Awards. How can that happen? The word of God adequately explains it. Why would they highlight a group of devil worshipers? Because men by nature love darkness rather than light. They lack the will and they lack the ability. And that's why we know God's word is right. Whenever Jesus said, you haven't chosen me, I've chosen you. You will not come to me that you might have life. Now listen, what you're going to hear in every other what, and you, many of you know this. Some of you don't. You've been raised up. What you're going to hear in other churches, I've heard this many, many, many times in my life, that, well, no, it's a, you, we're not really that our whole, listen, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint, from the uh, top of the head, to, from the soles of the feet to the top of the head. There is no soundness in us until sovereign grace comes on the scene. We are absolutely helpless. 
But everywhere in this area, outside of this church with that man, they're hearing on Sunday morning. I remember hearing this as a boy from uh, a television broadcast by uh, a nameless preacher. I don't name call. But he said this. He said, listen. He said, we need your help. We need your support. You need to send us money. And I believe this man was sincere. You need to send us money. We know how much money it takes to save a soul. It takes money to save souls. We've got to get the gospel out. He said, because listen, friends, he said there are, listen, he said there are millions of people that are floundering around right now on the, on the top of uh, the waters of humanity. They're treading water and they're going to go down. They're going to die. They're going to go down to hell. If we don't throw the gospel life preserver out to them, send us, help us so that we can send the gospel life preserver. Well, there are a lot of problems with that. But the biggest problem with that in his analogy is this, is that men and women, before the grace of God comes to them, they're not treading waters on the top of the ocean of humanity. They're at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. They're at the bottom of the ocean. And the sharks have come in and have devoured their heart and their soul and their will. And they have no desire for God. And God must come to where they are and reach down to them and take them from the depths. We lack the will and we, the carnal mind. It's not that we're in a neutral position. It's not that, you know, we're just, we just need to choose between the God or the, no, my friends, uh, our carnal mind is enmity. We are hostile. We are enemies to God before grace comes on the scene. The carnal mind is enmity against God, not subject to the laws of God, neither indeed can be. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on him that has sent me hath eternal life, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. You see the cause and effect relationship? It is, we don't believe in order to get eternal life. We believe because we have it already. We've got it. Shall not come into condemnation, because we've already passed from death into life. Sovereign grace shows up, gives us a new heart, a new mind, a uh, new appetite. and we. So you, you all get that. Let me say this. I know, I know that you all get that. You all, you all understand that. Um, cause and effect. And let me say, there are, people that, there are people that read the word of God and understand cause and effect. That preacher I talked to in his office that day, he understood cause and effect. But let me tell you this, his nature did not like it. Didn't like it. It's not fair. It's not fair. What about everybody else? Well, let me tell you. Um, we just need to focus on ourselves. You know, people that tell me, well, okay, uh, you know, I, I believe God's my God. I believe Jesus is my Jesus. But what about everybody else? How are they going to, you know? Um, God told Peter, listen, don't worry about John. <laughs> Be thankful for what I'm telling you, what I have to say to you. Okay. Um, the real problem with this truth, this is the problem that, that you're going to find uh, facing you all today, young folks trying to embrace the sovereignty of God and hold to the truth of the sovereignty of God today, is uh, the real problem with this truth um, for advanced cultures like Western civilization, we're really advanced, but a human-based culture, advanced culture like we are, the real problem is not cause and effect. The real problem is that it is a it's insulting to our arrogant culture that we live in. They detest the, they detest the intellectual elites of our day. They detest the sovereignty of God, which you hold so precious, uh, because it insults them. They are not in charge, and that's, that's a problem to them. Now, uh, there was a poem in, in England that was written back in the late 1800s. 
Um, and that was uh, about 40 years after Darwinism had been really, really entrenched. Social Darwinism has led us to where we are today. Um, but Darwinism was very entrenched in Great Britain, and so Great Britain went from a God-fearing, Bible-believing nation, and after about 40 years of Darwinism, and it's bled over into philosophy and into their institutes of higher education, you got a, a raft of poets that were writing things like this. And many of you have read this poem, Invictus. I, and this is, this is one of the lines from Invictus, and, and this is what our culture believes about us, each one of us that I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Everybody believes that it's their right. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. I've got my rights. I make my choices. I determine for myself. And I understand that to a degree. But not in the ultimates. Somebody's in charge, and it's not us. I'm the master of my faith, the captain of my soul. And that's the essence, that is the essence of the Western mindset. Nobody can tell me I'm ultimately in charge. It's what the media tells us. You're in charge. And that today... Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, not eternally. There are many of God's children that are lost to the gospel. Why? He says, because the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. And in each generation, uh, in each epoch of history, Satan has a different way of blinding people's minds about truth. And the way he's blinding minds right now is through Pride and arrogance, he's always marketed those commodities. But I'm telling you, we are a proud culture. We're an arrogant culture. Nobody can, uh, nobody, nobody, not our founding fathers, surely not the word of God can tell me what proper standards, morals. Um, I'm, the, I'm the master of my faith, the captain of my soul. This is, this is about grace, though. Um, it's insulting. Let me share with you an experience that I have whenever um, I, was, um, I was working on my second degree at the university. And in this degree, they put us uh, into cohorts, which is a good thing. And so uh, they put us in, in a cohort. And then inside of the cohort, so uh, everybody was starting out in that degree program at that university. They all started together, and they all ended in theory together. And there were study groups inside of that cohort. And so that you should be additional supports by everybody taking the same classes at the same time, going through together. And it really did work. It was great educational practice. And so you have become very close to your study group inside of your cohort. And uh, there are several men and women to whom I owe my second degree. <laughs> I wouldn't have made it through without them. And inside the study group, uh, it was not long before I started having to tell them, listen, can somebody get notes for me? I have a funeral. And, you know, after about six months, I was man, you have a lot of funerals. Um, are you a preacher or something? Yes, I'm a minister. I'm a minister. And so uh, they're very kind. We develop relationships. And so uh, there was a dear lady uh, in there who I really worked on loving for Christ's sake. She professed to be a Christian. Um, she was very liberal in her theology, and it was very offensive to her that I, as a Christian minister, was going to be a public high school principal. She said, and it really bothered her, and she was a Christian. She said, listen, I, I just believe in separation of church and state. She said, um, I don't have any problem with you being a public high school principal. Uh, I mean, I don't have any problem with you being a principal as, as long as it's not in a public high school. You need to go uh, and be a Christian high school principal. And I said, well, I appreciate your input. We just walk in the light that we have to walk in. And I feel burdened about the public school setting. I don't want to abandon it to uh, non-believers. 
I want to be a little point of light if I can. And she, she did not like me from that day forward. I did the best I could to make her like me. But she would not. And so finally in our study group, we're taking a little break one day, and somebody said, listen, um, I understand. I know somebody knows you, and you know, you're only six people away from somebody. It doesn't matter if you go to Nebraska. You're only six relationships away from somebody that you all know in common. And it was just a matter of time. She said, I know somebody knows you. You're a primitive Baptist. And if you could have seen the look on everybody's faces, he's a what? <laughs> and so, so she said this. Um, she said, what do primitive Baptists believe? And so I began to explain. I said, well, it all begins with the sovereignty of God. If you understand the sovereignty of God, then, then every, all of the rest of our doctrine will make perfect sense if you understand if you begin with the fact that god is on the throne and in the matter of salvation and redemption because god's on the throne he was sovereign in his creation nobody was uh in uh, nobody was back there with him in creation helping him instructing him counseling him He's sovereign in dispensing his gifts to his people in the church today. He's sovereign there. But he's sovereign in salvation and redemption. That means that he's calling the shots. She said, what do you mean he's calling the shots? And I said, that means I believe that um, God before the world was made choice of his people. In Christ, vouchsafed them in the Son, predestinated them to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. And the other lady, she who shall remain nameless, the other lady said, I hate that. I hate that. That's the most terrible thing I've ever heard in my life. That's exactly what she said. Now, I've got another reason to hate you, you know. That was, she seemed kind of glad. So I, so I asked her, I, I said, Deidre, dadgummit. <laughs> I really try not. <laughs> I said, Lucy. <laughs> I said, ma'am, <laughs> um, you say that you're a Christian. Yes, I am. And I asked her, I said, why are you a Christian? She said, because I believed. And I said, well, why did you believe? She said, because I repented. And I said, well, why did you repent? She said, because I felt sorry. And I said, well, and she was saying it just like that too, because I felt sorry. I said, well, why did you feel sorry? And then, I will say her name, Cherry Henry, Cherry, not Sherry Henry, spoke up, the sweetest, quietest young lady in our study group. She spoke out and exclaimed. She said, no, I get it. I get it. I didn't seek him. He sought me. That's the way it was. That is it. I get it. I've never heard anybody say that before. That's the truth. And if you could have seen the look on Deidre's face, she never got over it. We have a sister in our church. We have a sister. I didn't seek him. He sought me. That's the word of God. We have a sister in our church. This is so precious. We have a sister in our church. Um, that attends. Her name is Sister Sandy Bradley. She has one of the sweetest testimonies. I've never shared it publicly. It's the first time I've ever shared it publicly. She's precious. Um, and she shared with me, uh, I asked her if I could share this sometime. And uh, she shared with me that when she was a little girl, she was raised on an Air Force base overseas in Germany. That's her first conscious memory. And her dad was there for a large number of years. Her dad and mom were atheists. They didn't believe in God at all. God was never mentioned in their home. 
uh, God, and as you know, Europe's been secularized for years now. So there wasn't, she wasn't at risk for hearing about Jesus uh, on the base or off the base. She said, I didn't know his name. I didn't know anything about him. But she said, I would feel very empty inside of me. I would feel very alone inside, very empty, very hollow. And she said, as an eight or nine-year-old girl, I went into my bedroom. I don't know why I felt like I needed to hide, but I did. I went into my bedroom, and I made, I pushed back my clothes, and I made a little permanent place in my closet. I'd close my bedroom door, and I would get in my closet, and I would close my closet door, and I would just speak. I didn't know who I was speaking to, but I would just share outside of myself that I don't feel like I'm doing good. I don't feel like I'm being good. I need help. Will you please help me? How, how in the world can a little eight-year-old girl find her way to a quiet place in a closet to pray to a God she's never heard his name before? How? He tells us, doesn't he? In the next verse, he said, they shall all be taught of the Lord, wherever they are. No man can come unto me, except my Father which has sent me, draw him. And that's man, woman, boy, or girl. You know why she ended up in that closet? Because her heavenly Father was sweetly drawing her. Sovereignly. There was no one to assist her. There was no one to inform her. There was no one to help her. There wasn't a preacher around. She'd never read the Bible. How did she know to do that? Except our Savior went to Lodabar and fetched her. He got her. He's sovereign. Treasures up his bright designs. He works his sovereign will. He draws them. Now that's a statement about grace. The word draw brings grace in. Draw. I love that. I am going to draw them. It's, a, it's, it's really, it's a thing of beauty. God is a God of beauty. I will draw them. I'm going to draw. You notice he didn't say, except my father which has sent me, drive them. He didn't say that my father's going to drive my people to me. He said, my father's going to draw them. What a loving God. A sovereign God, a sovereign God is not a God. This, our Father, our God, our sovereign Lord and Redeemer, it's, he's, he's not as he's often pictured by the unbelieving of this world as this mean, despotic, egomaniac, cosmological despot. He is a loving God that draws people in love to him. He draws them. That's grace. Thank God he's drawn because we'd never come unless he draws. Listen to what he says. Hosea chapter 11. This is so beautiful. And this is your experience, my experience. This is how our sovereign God brings us to him. This is how the word of God informs us we have a relationship with God. He draws us. He says this, what the Lord did. Speaking of his covenant people, this is the way he establishes his relationship with his covenant people, Hosea 11:4. He said, I drew them, I drew them with the cords of a man and with bands of love. I drew them with the cords of a man with bands of love. I love, I love Jesus tonight. Because he has compelled me to love him. His love is irresistible. It's overwhelming. It is ultimately engaging. I drew them. 
How? With the bands of love. And then this is what that God that the unbelieving world says is the cosmological despot does. Listen to what he says. And I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. You've seen some place that I want to take you, but I'm not going to drive you, says. My bridle and my bit is love. I draw them. He said, I'm going to draw them with bands of love. And when I draw them to me, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the yoke of burden off of them. He's irresistible. His love is irresistible. Now listen, he's powerful. He is powerful. But he wooed me with his love. The Lord of old hath appeared unto me, saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. See, the way the world will say sovereignty is, and especially at universities where they're going to tell you about the Puritans in predestination election, oh, you have this God who just tramples on people and he just beats people into submission. That's not the way he draws. He draws with the bands of love. And then when he brings us to himself, he says this, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. You shall find rest to your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of this world, I'm telling you. It, whenever we went to, uh, when we went to, <laughs> oh, I love Jesus if I'm about to use this illustration. When we went to the University of Florida for uh, booze preview, so if you go to the University of Florida, the University of Florida, if you go to the University of Florida, they'll have something called the preview. And so um, they, you're there for a couple of days, except they do this right away. This is what the world wants to do with you all. They do this right away. They separate you from your child. I get it. You know, want them to stand up. And they explain that to the parents, don't panic and all. And I didn't panic. I did my very best to prepare John Anthony for the onslaught of re-education he was going to get. I didn't want them, I didn't mind them teaching my son about microbiology. He did a good job with that. But I wanted him to be very careful when they started talking to him about the origin of life. And in preview, they told him this. Now listen, young people, it's they told him this thing. Young people, I know you love your mother and father. Some of you have been raised in church, appreciate your pastors, that's good. They're wonderful people, they've had a great influence on you. But it's time for us to do a little re-education. And I, we don't want you communicating with them like you've communicated with them in the past. The University of Florida told my son that. So what they tell, what then the professors take them in the classes, what they will tell them is and what you will hear, sad to say, even at the University of Florida. Though I have more hope now for the University of Florida, now we've gotten a Republican former senator from uh, Nebraska. I said Republican, I'm so sorry, <laughs> I'm so sorry. But what they will tell them is we are trying to free your minds. We're trying to free your minds from so many of the oppressive thoughts that you've received from those that have brought you up. And listen, they can't think of anything any more oppressive than teaching children that there is a sovereign God that's in charge, ruling and reigning in this universe, and that um, he rules and super rules. He has his way in the wind and the whirlwind. None can stay his hand, say what do us some. That's really oppressive to them. But thank God to my son, he finds great consolation that there is a God 
who's in control of this universe. And it's not purposelessness. And that God has a purpose for my life, and he has a purpose that he's achieving and accomplishing in this universe. And he's sovereign. He's going to bring his purposes to fruition and to pass. The world says that's a horrible yoke, and I'm telling you, the world teaching our children that there is no God, and you're just the most, you're just the most advanced chemical spill in the universe. That's all you are. Just the most complex chemical reaction sewn up in a bag of skin. You're the most complex chemical reaction in the universe. That's all you are. They find that very free and liberating. It's a horrible yoke. It's darkness. It's the abyss. That there is nothing except what we have right now, this existential experience that we have right now. There's nothing beyond it. Praise God, as one of my dear friends says, I've got a better story than that. And that is, there is a God that loves you. And he sent his son to die for you. And he has sovereignly made choice of you. And he's going to have you. And he's going to draw you. And you're going to be his. He's going to seek you out if you're in his family. Without the loss of one, they will all be there. Uh, Jesus didn't win any friends, as we know, in John chapter 6. Those that were arguing with him, he didn't compel them. Uh, They would give other reasons as to why they wouldn't believe Jesus. The world's going to give you other. You know, one of the reasons they give after this in the book of John, if you'll just show us a sign, let us see a miracle. You'll hear that. Well, where are miracles? Show us a sign. Let me say this. Jesus gave them a big one in John 11, right? He raises a dead man from the grave. And you know what men in the baseness of their neck, you know what they're, so he gives them a miracle. So you know what they wanted to do then? Believe on him? They wanted to kill him. We have to kill him now. (laughs) Uh, You're not going to win the argument with Jesus. I love you all. Don't let anyone steal your tent. What I've held to, by God's grace, the doctrine of salvation by the sovereign grace of God has stabilized me through the upheavals through the gyrations of life, the brokenness of this world, that I am my beloved's and my beloved's mine, that he's drawn me, I will run after him. May God bless and keep is my prayer for Christ's sake.